Welcome to episode 10 of the Alec Hogg Show, a long-form audio biography where we delve into the lives of interesting South Africans. Our guest in this episode is an extraordinarily talented and courageous young man whom the Scott family call David, but the rest of South Africa knows as the Kifness. His wildly popular musical parodies and satirical YouTube videos have attracted millions upon millions of viewers, turning this mild-mannered musician into one of the most recognizable faces in the country. But the one-time medical student's art hasn't come without risk, with the occasional puffed-up politician taking sufficient umbrage to set loose their social media attack dogs. But as you'll hear, the Kifness is unbowed because he figures that without freedom of expression, there's no point to call ourselves a democracy. Like other guests on this show, David Scott was selected on the basis that if his story were captured in book form, it would likely be a bestseller. I've been enthralled by your YouTube videos, as I think millions of South Africans had. But let's go back before we get into what the Kifness is. You were a Michael House boy. Michael House is, is an interesting school. It's a different education or different way of educating people. Yeah, definitely not a not an academic school, but I, I definitely learned sort of holistically, I'd say. But uh, in terms of just the the natural beauty of the place and you know just the ethos, yeah, very lucky to have gone to such an incredible school. Were you from a wealthy background that enabled you there? It obviously is one of the the top schools in the country. I don't know if I'd ever be able to afford to send my children there, but my dad is a retired ENT. He practiced at Morningside Clinic for for many years. And I actually wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps and, you know, become a doctor. I saw all the amazing work that he did, you know, curing people's hearing and taking out tonsils and just seeing how grateful his patients were really inspired me to want to become a doctor like my dad. So I actually did half a year at med school at WITS. And after half a year, I realized, you know, this isn't for me. I wanted to help people, but it's definitely not going to be in the medical profession. I couldn't see myself <laughs> slaving away for for six years, you know, to get a, a doctor degree and then more years after that to, to specialize. Uh, so full credit to doctors. What they do is unbelievable. Yeah, when, when I was studying medicine, I missed, you know, being able to just make music and be creative. And that's when I realized, you know, creativity is uh, an, it's an important part of who I am. There's obviously a lot of creativity that comes with uh, being a doctor as well. You need to sometimes think out of the box. But, uh, yeah, not for me. So what happened after that six months of medical school? It was a bit of a gap half year. 
I worked for my brother a little bit. He's an incredibly talented animator and cartoonist. So he kind of took me under his wing and I learned a bit of animation and I was syncing audio with talking animals and that kind of thing. And also just making music in my spare time. It's something that I did throughout high school. Uh, you know, when we were supposed to be out playing out in the fields in the Midlands, we had a thing called free barns on Sundays where it was compulsory to go out and build a hut or do something, uh, but you couldn't be indoors. But I kind of broke those rules. I would stay inside and uh, work on my music production because that's, that's just what I love doing. But it was always kind of just a hobby. And then I, I slowly but surely uh, started taking it a little bit more seriously, much to my parents' uh, dismay. When did you start making a living out of music? So I went to, to Rhodes University after Wits to study journalism. Uh, that was kind of the next step into something that I thought could, you know, bring in a little bit of money. Uh, but I ended up with a BA in music and philosophy. I'd, after a year of journalism, I thought, you know, this is, this is quite nice, but, you know, music is my thing. Uh, so throughout Rhodes, I started making a bit of money DJing. A friend of mine and I used to go out to a place called The Union, which was the, the local watering hole. We used to enjoy going there, but we thought, yes, see, this DJ is playing really bad music. I'm sure we could do a better job. So we, <laughs> we asked the, the owner if we could start DJing. We, we knew nothing about DJing, but uh, he gave us the job. That was my first paycheck, DJing at The Union. I got 150 rand for four hours and two beers. And for us, that was amazing. How long ago was that? Uh, that was 2007. Yeah, I started DJing. I was playing in jazz bands as well. So we're playing kind of functions also for, for peanuts. But yeah, throughout roads, just playing. Trying to put in the jazz band and DJing was my way of getting uh, drinking money. It was only until I saw Goldfish. For the first time in, I think, 2008, they came and played at the, the Rhodes Street Party, we called it. And I saw what they were doing, which was kind of combining jazz and house music and kind of doing this live electronic thing. That's when I thought, that's what I want to do. And not a lot of people were doing that. Then my brother does a lot of their music videos. So through that, I got to meet Goldfish and they kind of taught me the ropes of how to actually you know, do live electronic music. By sort of 2012, yeah, I was combining my trumpet with these beats that I was making on my laptop and kind of making a bit of a name for myself. It was still very small, but uh, Goldfish uh, invited us to kind of open for them for Submerged Sundays, which is a show that they have in Camps Bay uh, throughout summer, every Sunday. And it's, it's a massive thing. So that was a big step in the door. Yeah, opening for Goldfish. And then slowly but surely, uh, my music got to a point where it was good enough to be on radio. And I think our first kind of successful single was in about, was 2013. I did a song with uh, Matthew Gold called Where Are You Going? And that song kind of put us on the map. Before then, like, we'd, we'd say to promoters, you know, this is what we do please, can you book us? And they'd say, well, we don't know who you are. But then having a song kind of on the, the 5FM Top 40 changed the game completely. Back then, 
having a song on the top 40 was quite a big deal. And uh, I, I saw the change almost instantly. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. The name, the Kiffness. When I was thinking of a name, I thought, I want to have something that's uniquely South African, firstly. But secondly, I wanted a name that was easy to find on the internet. Uh, something that's unique. So the Kiffness was just a name that, that, that came to mind. My brother's email address is kiffness at gmail. And when I saw that, I was like, that's quite interesting. And then I Googled Kiffness. There wasn't anything on the internet called Kiffness. So I thought, well, this will work. And it's just, it's a word that I used kind of throughout high school. Uh, at Michael House, Kiff was like used every second word. So it, 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 it just felt right. <laughs> and it still means what it meant when I was a young man. Uh, really cool, nice, good. Exactly. Good old mm-hmm. surface slang. The Kiffness today, though, is known as, as something else amongst South Africans. You've almost been forgotten as a musician, but more as a parody artist. When did that transition happen? Um, I'd say probably at the start of lockdown, but even a little bit before that. I'd, I'd made a parody of Eminem's Guess Who's Back, but I made it about ESCOM's load shedding. So it was Guess Who's Back, Load Shedding's Back. And that really took off. People really seemed to like that. So I thought, well, this is something that was quite fun to do and, and easy to do. It got a good response. So I seemed to, to kind of thrive off tragedy, as, as bad as that sounds. I mean, when something bad happens, it's an opportunity for me to kind of just make light of it and, and try and just uh, make people laugh in the, in the face of adversity. And I think that's something I've always uh, sort of tried to do is, is when something's difficult, just laugh at it. It kind of lightens the burden a little bit. So I've always made memes whenever something bad's happened. I always have an idea which I think is funny. Like throughout high school, I was, I was drawing cartoons of, of teachers that were mean to me or whatever. And I guess it's just always been my way of coping with uh, difficult circumstances is to, is to just uh, have a laugh. So obviously when the pandemic hits, this is something that everyone in the whole world was going through. And uh, I think that's why the sort of COVID parodies did well was, was because everyone was going through it. And I was able to kind of reach people across the globe that were finding the humor in, in these parodies that I was doing. And also kind of reach a bit of an older audience because I was doing parodies of, of mostly, you know, 80s and 70s hits that I kind of grew up listening to. So there was power in just the humor and also the element of nostalgia. I think uh, doing songs that remind you of better times is transporting. You know, when I sing these songs, it, it's not only funny, but it, it kind of takes you back to a better time. And I think people enjoyed that part of it as well. But David, lots of people sing, millions of musicians who are desperately trying to make a name for themselves. What was it that uh, gave you what Faith Popcorn used to write about years ago, uh, that clicking, the, the tipping point? When did that come or how did that come? I'd say the, the parody that I did with my dad, perhaps. 
uh, we did a, a parody of Father and Son. It was just a conversation with my dad and obviously just changing the words to make it relevant to the pandemic. And that really took off. I mean, my dad, you know, being a doctor, I think is quite a private person. He, he, he avoids all social media. He's still got a sort of Nokia 3310. He's a complete technophobe. So when I pitched the idea to him, he was already quite tentative. He, he didn't want to do it, but, you know, I showed him the lyrics that I'd written and, you know, my, my family, I think, encouraged him and said, you know, this is quite endearing. I think he was, he was worried just about some of the wording about, we, there was a line where he says, take your time, drink a lot, think of everything you got or something. And he didn't want to kind of promote alcoholism. So I said, no, dad, it's, it's fine. So we put it out. I didn't expect much, but the next thing, it just blew up. And I got, I think it's on about 8 million views on Facebook at the moment. And, you know, my dad, whenever he goes out to the golf course, He's recognized and people are saying, oh, great job. So I think he kind of regrets it in a way, but I think it touched a lot of people's hearts. I think a lot of people were saying, you know, they, they missed their dad when they saw this. I think there was just something quite special about that. So perhaps that was the tipping point. But yeah, I'm, I'm never quite sure because I'm, I'm kind of just stuck in my flat. It's a strange concept to think, you know, 8 million people have, have watched this video, but, you know, it doesn't really affect me directly. I, I guess I'm, I'm just here having a good time trying to be creative. And, yeah, whatever happens after that is a distraction, really. I'm, I'm just trying to keep myself sane, but it is nice when, when people enjoy it. What's a creative process? Where does that all come now, some people talk about taking a shower, taking a bath. Hmm. What, how does it work for you? Well, it definitely comes in waves. That's, that's all I know is that, you know, at the start of the pandemic, I was churning these, these parodies out like one every two days, you know. It was just a, a wave that I was riding. I didn't have to force much. I just thought, you know, I enjoy doing this and I'd just think of a song and then, you know, the words would just come to me. I don't know how else to put it. But yeah, I'm, I'm sitting on the couch where most of the ideas come. It's a very nice, comfortable leather couch. And normally at about somewhere between the, the times of 11 to 1 in the, in the morning is, is where like a really good idea would come. And then I'd kind of just sit on it. And it's interesting you say a, a bath or a shower because when I have my shower the next morning, this idea would have been sitting while I was sleeping and while I'm having my coffee. But it's, it's very strange that as soon as that water hits my head, it's almost like the ideas shift around and I see things completely differently. And then after a shower, I kind of, you know, uh, scrape the edges and, uh, you know, put a bit of spit and polish and then it's, it's done. And then it's just a matter of recording it. I think the important thing for me is not to, to force anything. As soon as it feels like I have to write a parody or, or do something like that, that's when it falls flat. But yeah, creativity is a, it's a very strange thing. You, you kind of have to be willing to accept that it, it comes and it goes. And when it comes, it's great. But when it goes, you can't force it. And I guess I'm at a, I'm at a stage now where 
it's maybe not coming as naturally. So I'm just accepting that and, you know, using my time to, to just relax and, and, and do other things. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. We hear from the outside that people who are hugely successful on YouTube, like yourself, can make a really good living out of it. Is that so? Yeah. So, I mean, at the peak of, of lockdown, a lot of people were on YouTube. I saw a definite spike. I was, I was reaching a new audience. I was singing about things that were global. So, I was getting quite a lot of views from America and, and Europe. If I could maintain that, that kind of viewership, I, I could definitely live off YouTube. I think at the peak of it, I was making maybe like 40, 50 grand a month, which is fairly decent. And, but keep in mind, because I'm doing parodies, the original publishers of the songs take a cut of that as well. So if, if I was making completely original content, I could have easily been clearing 100 grand um a month which is quite amazing but obviously the views have gone down a bit i'm not making content as regularly so i think to be successful you you kind of have to create content fairly regularly and also just let your audience know more or less when you're going to be posting videos i think that's uh the one ingredient i haven't got right because it comes and goes and at the moment i haven't posted a video in a while so youtube at the moment is is not making that much at the moment for myself but uh yeah i think for a lot of podcasters and uh Mm. yeah guys like you who are doing this kind of thing quite regularly it, it can work out that's really interesting you have to then get permission first from the original publisher of the of the music uh technically yes but uh, the YouTube algorithm has worked it out pretty well. I mean, it can pick up, you know, this is a cover of this song, and then it just automatically splits the money. Um, so technically, I would have to get permission, but a lot of these publishers just kind of turn a blind eye because, you know, they're getting money for it. So there, there was an instance where my parody was removed from YouTube because I didn't get uh, permission from Toto. One of the first uh, sort of COVID parodies I did was of Toto Africa. And it was on the news and all over the place. Even uh, Jackson Mtembu, you know, posted it on his, on his Twitter. They're kind of using it as this like uh, marketing tool to, to encourage people to stay inside. Um, and then I got a message from someone saying that they actually know the guitarist from Toto and they sent it to them. And I said, well, that's amazing. What did they say? And apparently the guy just said, wow. So I don't know if that was a good wow or a bad wow, but the next day it was taken off YouTube. So maybe maybe it was a bad wow. Maybe he didn't like it. And and I can understand to an extent, you know, like if, if you're proud of a song and, you know, someone takes the song and changes the message and maybe taints the the message or, or just the image of the song in some way, you should have kind of full rights to say whether it should stay up or not if the person didn't uh, ask for, the, for permission in the first place. To a degree, I think I've broken the rules, but it, 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 it's, it's a very gray area as well because if it's a parody, then it falls under fair use. But if it falls 
under anything else like satire or or something like that, then you do have to to get uh, explicit permission. You mentioned Jackson Mtembu. There's a politician who initially embraced you. I'm not so sure too many politicians have embraced you subsequent to that. What goes on in your mind when you put these together? So I think there's there's a difference between parody and satire. I think parody is more just comedy and you know face value entertainment. I think satire kind of goes into a bit of a different ball game where it's more risky and it does often come with with scrutiny. But that I think that's the point of satire is that you're making fun of a certain person or a certain group of people and exposing their flaws. So if if it upsets, you know, people in the ANC or the EFF, then it's essentially doing its job. But it does get a little bit scary when it results in inciting violence and and that kind of thing, which is which has been the case with two of my satirical pieces, if I can call them that. So my my sort of satirization of the national anthem got Tony Yangani and Miss Messina seeing red, you know, Messina posting a picture of me saying, who knows this little racist? And then Yangani in response saying, Twitter detectives, let's find this guy and skin him alive. I mean, it's it's bizarre. I can understand to a degree if, if they thought it was disrespectful and they voiced their opinion about how it's disrespectful to do this to the national anthem. People are entitled to their opinions as long as they don't incite violence. And then I did the same thing with my parody of Jerusalem, Julius Malema. I'd say for the most part, people found it funny and enjoyed it. But then obviously there were EFF supporters and, and the like who, who didn't like it and also you know, incited violence. It does come with the territory, like if ordinary sort of citizens, you know, say this guy must die or let's kill this person, it's it's water off a duck's back. But when it comes from leaders, you know, members of parliament, that's when I, I worry a little bit about our democracy. What do you do about that? Can you do anything about it? Well, I could I could get litigious, which is something I didn't want to do. Um, when Messina you know, called me a racist. It, it caused a bit of a, a ruckus and I, I lost a bit of work. I was, I was working with a few brands, you know, I was, I was on the rise and a lot of brands wanted to work with me. So I was on the brink of quite a big brand deal. And as a result of all of this, they, they pulled out. So. Seriously? Yeah. I, yeah they pulled no, out? Yeah, I think I think even though they knew I wasn't racist, I was just uh, you know expressing my disdain for <laughs> the ridiculous rules that were being made by Lamini Zuma. They understood completely that I have the right to say this. It's uh, constitutional. I'm not doing anything wrong. But I think brands are very nooks at the moment. I mean, we 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 look at what happened to Clicks and H and M and Dove, you know, things that were essentially, in my view, mistakes. And if you look at them on for, for what they were, adverts, you could argue that they weren't even mistakes. They're just ads. 
that were misinterpreted or maybe invited offense. These companies suffer as a result of that. So I think brands are, are just very nips. Anything that might invite some kind of scrutiny, I think brands just want to stay away from completely, which is, I think, half the problem is that brands are, are spineless. They don't know what they stand for. They need to actually just take a stand and say, well, if you don't like it, then tough. <laughs> Instead, they kind of just bow to the mob, which is what I kind of refuse to do. I believe in what I'm saying, so why should I apologize? You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. Who do you draw inspiration from? Sure. Um, I'd say probably... Who, who, who are the other satirists in South Africa? I mean, Avita Bezadenhout, I think, took a lot of flack. You know, what I'm going through now, I think Avita went through... Zapiro, it's it's interesting being a white satirist in this country. I think um, if you're slightly darker, it's, it's easier to get away with saying the same things. But I think, unfortunately, in this country, the truth isn't as important as the person it's coming from. I think if, you, if you're a white South African who, who's trying to tell the truth, it, it often comes with unfair scrutiny. But um, that's, that's part of the, the humor, actually, is that just because I'm white, you know, I'm treated differently. And uh, all I can do is actually laugh at it. I've made a, a song called White Privilege where I'd sing about trying to actually understand what it, what it means to, to be privilege because of the color of your skin. I mean, I, I think there are certain merits to it. I think um, by virtue of being in a family that, you know, sent me to a good school like Michael House, a lot of that is because of, I wouldn't say the color of my skin, but just the history of this country. I think, uh, you know, we did benefit from apartheid and I feel that to an extent I might be reaping the benefits of the apartheid legacy. But, um, yeah, I think that's just always going to be a, a, something that uh, people will use against us. But what about South Africans who've gone elsewhere in the world and have been very successful? We haven't really needed – Elon Musk left when he was 17. He hadn't really needed any benefit from apartheid, for instance – um, are the, is that an option that's open to you? Are you able yeah, to uh, travel? Does your art travel? Yeah, and in 2018, we we did a bit of a European stint. And I, I definitely think there's scope for what I do overseas. But I, I don't want to leave South Africa. This is my home. I think for the most part, you know, people just want to get along and you know, respect each other. Like, I think, I think this, this world that the media and social media is painted is completely different to the actual reality of just everyday life. Um, if I had to go on the hate that I get online and compare it to what my life is actually like, it's, it's completely different. I've actually met a lot of my detractors in person and it's, it's often very different. They treat me with dignity. And I think 
when you speak to someone from behind a screen, it's pretty much like road rage where you can just shout obscene things at someone and, and not feel like you're doing anything wrong. But as soon as you're face to face with someone, it's, it's often very different. You're very famous. People recognize you presumably just about everywhere you go. You're not nervous that uh, some lunatic is, is going to make your life a misery? Um, well, it's funny you say that because, yeah, we, we had one of our first public shows in a long time. And obviously, you know, I announced it. We're going to be playing here at La Parada, Sunday, fun day. And it was a great show, sold out. But, you know, when I announced it, there were people saying, you know, who's keen to go heckle the Kiffness at this gig and, you know, people wanting to come and spoil the day. And, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm nervous of those people, but I'd imagine that at some stage there's just going to be someone who comes to a show to, I don't know, throw rotten eggs at me and just spoil the the vibe, you know. (laughs) But, yeah. That person never actually rocked up to the show. And I think it's because I I messaged him and said, listen, you know, by all means, please come and speak to me before or after the show. I'm a very relaxed, chilled person, but please, you know, for the sake of everyone here who just wants to have a good time, just don't do it. It's a lose-lose situation. I guess people will always say things online, but then maybe think twice about doing it in, in real life. But we'll, we'll wait and see. But I'm not scared of anyone. Not going to stop doing what you're doing because of threats? Um, I don't think so. I, I only fear God. I'm, I'm not going to be intimidated. I think uh, now's the time for, for people to be bold and, and courageous and, and stand firm in the truth and not give terrorists what they want which is you know fear i'm of the belief that if you're just kind and reasonable there's nothing to fear if it results in something bad happening then it's unfortunate but uh it's not going to stop me and your family we see your wife often it is your wife on it your is video my wife yeah yeah i mean Obviously, I mean, my wife and I are are wanting to start a family at some stage, and I think maybe I would feel a bit differently if I if I had children, for sure. I think, yeah, the threats would definitely sit differently if I if I had uh, kids to look after. But yeah, I'm I'm always kind and decent to people, and I think even if people are mean to me, in the back of their minds, I, I think they realize that there's no point of wanting to inflict pain on, on someone who's, who's essentially just voicing his opinion, not, not calling people ridiculous things and inciting violence. I'm just someone who wants to make things that are entertaining and, yeah, obviously satire is a bit of a different ball game, but... At the end of the day, it's comedy. And I think comedy is is very important for our democracy. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. Have you reached out to Jonathan Shapiro, Zapiro, or Peter Dirk Ace, um, Evita Besednot? Because they must have gone through, at various times of their career, a similar uh, resistance. I haven't reached out to them. 
I, I would love to, to speak to them at some stage. I've spoken to Gareth Cliff, who has been through a similar, it's, it's, it's similar in, in many ways when he was kind of labeled a racist and, you know, got fired from, from the idols judge panel. And then he kind of uh, sued Mnet and won. So I reached out to, to Gareth because I've had a lot of lawyers kind of reach out to me and say they want to represent me with this whole Messina case where, you know, I was unfairly defamed and, and lost money. It's something I'm starting to consider a bit more now than I, than I did previously because we're just seeing so many politicians you know, just inciting violence on Twitter all the time. And I, I feel like the precedent needs to be set. So I'm considering what I can do going forward with the, the sort of litigious options. So that's, that's why I reached out to Gareth and just kind of picked his brain about his, his whole process with that. And he basically just said, you know, you've you got to be willing to... <laughs> lose a lot of money even if you win it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to get money it's it's very expensive and that's maybe the one thing holding me back how old are you david good question 32 i think so how many of your friends are still around and and i'm asking this because you've been through quite a few fires as has gareth uh, we well know and we see many young white people looking to find a future somewhere else in the world. And yet you hear, you love this country as, as uh, those of us who live here certainly do. What makes you different to those who go on to find fame and fortune elsewhere? So a lot of friends have left and some of them have actually come back realizing that, you know, although things might be a little bit safer in New Zealand or the UK, they, they just miss South Africa. I'm pretty sure that, you know, if I did want to leave, I would fall into that boat where I'd be like, finally, I've got a bit of peace and safety, but then I'd, I feel like I'd get bored quite quickly. A lot of my, my creativity comes from turmoil in this country. You know, when there's load shedding, you know, that's content which, which sparks creativity for me. When Julius Malema is doing something crazy, that's, <laughs> that often gives me an idea for a song. So I think if I did go overseas, I'd probably find myself in a, in a job that's maybe a bit more boring, maybe as a, just a session musician or, or find, my, find a job in a studio where I'm mixing sound for a Nick. Netflix show. I don't know. Yeah, I think I'm. I'm definitely staying here because South Africa is definitely not boring, and just the, the natural beauty of this place. You know, when I when I go for a, a hike on Table Mountain, or you know, I go down to Clifton Beach. I'm just. I can't think of anywhere better. And when I when I see people of color walking around and we greet each other. Uh, I really do feel like actual life here is different to just kind of perceived threats. Um, but it, it's difficult to say because, you know, a friend of mine that I went to school with, his, his parents, uh, the Rafferty's were, were murdered recently 
on their farm in Newcastle. And I, I think that that definitely hit home for me. Uh, you hear about these farm murders and, you know, it just, it hits differently when it's, when it's people, you know, so there are a lot of things to consider, uh, about my future. I'm not quite sure what I want to do. Um, but for the meantime, I'm, I'm still relatively happy here. You've been listening to another Biz News production. Be sure to catch all our podcasts by subscribing to Biz News Radio on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, or by visiting biznews.com. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.